Have you ever had the experience of losing something valuable? The moment when you realize that something that you had is gone and now you're in a little bit of a panic and you can feel that anxious feeling right here. Maybe the last time you misplaced your, lost your phone, you had a little bit of panic going on. I, I have this. Every time my phone is gone and I realize I don't know where it is, I can't help it. There's like a little bit of a knot that instantly appears inside of me. Now, can you imagine if you lost this phone? This is the Caviar Solarius Zenith Full Gold iPhone 11 Pro. This is the most expensive phone in the world. It is worth $144,600. Ever wondered, WWJD, what would Jesus dial? Probably that phone. Why not? It's even got his family's portrait on it. The irony that someone would create a phone worth $144,000 on a hill you created light of the world came darkness and died in a cradle born in the dirt in an animal stall. But we'll etch you in gold and diamond on the back of a $144,000 cell phone because what? I'm afraid that the makers of things like this have lost more than their phone. You ever lost anything even more valuable? Or been part of a story where someone did? You ever seen a a situation where there's a child lost? The panic in their eyes? The only thing scarier in this world than a lost child is a mother that's just lost their child. Because they freak out. Two weekends ago, Nikki and I were in Arizona um, with the Dort event and got a phone call one night that my 12-year-old son in Pierce, South Dakota was lost and Grandpa couldn't find him. And um, Mama had a little bit of panic. And, 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 and I was too. Like We were completely freaking out about this. I bring this up because the story I want to talk about this morning isn't just what we lose necessarily when we lose our understanding and accuracy of the gospel or the person of Jesus. But it starts with a very human story. The story of Mary and Joseph as parents when they lost Jesus. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to their custom. And after the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. And thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The question I want to look at with you today is the first spoken words of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. Why were you searching for me? 
why are you here this morning? And I don't mean like in the existential sense. I mean like, why are, did you choose to sit where you're sitting and be in this place? What is it that you're looking for from Jesus today? Why are you still searching for him? Why do you still want to be in his presence? It's a question we're called to answer repeatedly in a lot of different ways. See, Lent is a time of searching. Searching for a deeper faith, for a truer understanding of discipleship each time the liturgical calendar turns again back into this season. It's a searching again for Jesus. The Lenten devotional I'm reading is the unvarnished Jesus, trying to look one more time again at what Jesus looks like, not through my expectations, not through the lenses of what I want, but Jesus on his own terms. So the question I want to challenge you with isn't just why are you searching for Jesus, but why are you searching for the Jesus that you are? And is it possible that the Jesus that you need today might be different, but the one that he wants to reveal himself to you to be is different than the one you're actually looking for? Are you asking things of God to the point where he doesn't just want to answer your questions, he wants to reorder your questions? to change them so that our pursuit itself looks different. You see, Lent is the pursuit of cruciform living. It's why Christians all over the world will gather today in churches and receive the sign of ashes, the sign of the cross on their forehead. I kind of wish when we got baptized we would actually like tattoo this on every Christian's forehead so we couldn't like hide in public that we would be held accountable. I mean, I know that we're supposed to demonstrate through the fruit of the Spirit and the clothing of Christ we put on and the ways that we look, but it'd be a pretty good conscious reminder if every day, whether we had ashes or a tattoo or something, that we are marked and set apart. Set apart for cruciform living. To live a pattern of life that follows a pattern of Jesus. Self-denial, cruciform living. Sharing in his suffering that we might also share in his resurrection. Now, when they come looking for Jesus, they come looking for the wrong Jesus. Jesus is sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. They've found someone who's have, obviously, the wisdom of God within him and is experiencing so many great things. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. But his parents can't see this because what they're looking for is they're looking through the lens of their panic. They're looking myopically in one little thing and not seeing the rest of what's going on. It's like finding somebody in a subway station playing a Stradivarius at the greatest world-class level and being like, I think there's a scratch on that thing. Like when you just can't see what's really happening in the moment. And what happens in each of those instances when we go looking for a God on our own terms, what we're looking for is so narrowly defined. Mary and Joseph were looking for Jesus in the midst of their panic. They were probably about to put up posters all over Jerusalem missing this little 12-year-old boy. Now, I'm playing, of course, a little bit here, but allow me a little bit of license. Imagine Mary and Joseph panicking in this moment. What do you do when you panic? When I panic, I first freak out and get the knot in my stomach, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I should pray. But could you imagine Mary and Joseph praying in this moment? Joseph, I think we should pray. Uh, I don't think so, Mary. I don't think we should tell him. <laughs> um, he's, he's God. He already knows. 
All right, well, then you tell him you just lost the Savior of the world, right? Like, how does that (laughs) prayer go for these poor parents completely freaking out? His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Every bit of anxiety and worry that comes up in our life, and this is actually why I'm the most worried about, uh, worried about the level of anxiety we experience in our culture today. It's because anxiety tunnels us inward. We are the least likely to reach out for help beyond ourselves when we're the most anxious. We don't open our hands, we clench our fists. We've been taught in our culture to double down on our own efforts. Hold things more closely. Don't let yourself become more vulnerable because you'll hurt even more. So they make it about themselves. Why have you treated us like this? I've said this so many different times and I'm stuck on this this truism. The journey to hell is not a downward moment, but a movement, but an inward one. We always become the most hellish, the most evil when we become self-interested and preoccupied. Think of the one moment when Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan. When he told him he looked like the devil himself is when Peter had a different agenda for Jesus than the one Jesus came to give him. You and I become the most hellish, the most devilish, the most get behind me, Satan, when we become the most self-interested. And what's scarier yet is we can't see Jesus for who he really is when we get like that. We make God answer to us. And we bargain with him. But God's not your spiritual vending machine. And I'm amazed in these moments how every one of us starts to articulate the language of karma instead of Christianity. But I even went to a Christian college. I did everything right. Like I did my devotions. I've been going to church every Sunday. I'm I'm doing all these things as if some sort of exchange is what God owes us because we've been paying the man. It's not how it works. This movement, this rabbi teaches us to follow in the theology of suffering, of understanding that we only find our life if we lose it. Not make him answer to us. And which of you have not heard a conversation like this at some point in time from your parents when they were more interested in their anxiety than yours? You know, your father and I, Jesus has been tempted and suffered in every way that you and I have. I was reflecting on this passage with um, a student this past week. And the next morning he did his devotions um, on this passage and shared thoughts with me um, but it, don't, we don't plagiarize, so I'll cite my source. And this was the line, losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus. This is the way of spiritual progress. This is what Tom saw in the text. I love working at Dort. I learned so many things from you guys. You have so many great insights. He went on, Jesus is always faithful, but he's never predictable. To assume that the way we once understood Jesus is the way we will always understand Jesus is a horrible idea. When we discover it was not God, but our image of God that abandoned us, only then is change possible. Oh, would that be our Lenten journey? If our image of God, the way that we construct it, the selfish versions, the ones that are preoccupied with us, were the things that died and instead we got Jesus on his own terms and not on ours, that would be a Lenten journey worth taking.
So they ask him the question, why have you treated us like this? And Jesus returns, of course, in typical fashion with an even better question. Well, why were you searching for me? And I never saw this in all my years in Sunday school learning this passage. This little part where the gospel writer winks at us. After three days, they found him. Did you ever notice that before? I think Luke's winking at us sort of what's to come. You see, this wasn't the last time Jesus was going to get lost for three days. And a lot of people were going to panic the next time it happened. And the stakes are even higher. And a different Mary on a different day was going to go looking for him for a very different reason. And she missed her friend. Why are you searching for me? Because you want to get wrecked by me, God asks? Because you want to find me on my own terms or because you need some sort of spiritual lucky rabbit foot that you go to whenever you kind of need a little better luck going on in your life? There's such a challenge of what it is that God wants back from us. The God who is searching for us in this reciprocal relationship also talks about us searching for him. And we live in this weird time between the feeling like God is somewhat distant because he's not here, but we know he's coming back. So Lent is like this giant Easter Saturday kind of season, right? Between the Friday and the Sunday, you and I live at the intersection of Friday and Sunday. We live in Saturday, don't we? And weird people live a Saturday cruciform life, knowing what we know about Jesus, but waiting for him to complete that work and finding our place within it. This is how we learn to practice resurrection, how we live out the kindness and the values and the salvation of God in our lives. And this is what weird people do. And your teachers and people around here, they get it. They get how weird discipleship is supposed to be. I went to the scholarship breakfast for distinguished scholars um, when they were going to come and interview as freshmen, and our esteemed cross-country coach, Nate Wolf, gave the message that morning. And it was like the most reversed sales pitch you've ever heard. He was basically, I, I, I had this little part inside of me, it was like, Nate, at some point in time, like you tell him actually to come here, right? Because he was doing this whole thing. He started off explaining the Nebraska tourism Model. Nebraska, honestly, it's not for everyone. <laughs> and he translated this into this Dort, sales pitch of Dort, honestly, it's not for everyone. Like, if you're not, if you don't want to really go after Jesus hard, then you might not like this place. And if you are not coming here to lose your life in order to find it, you're probably not going to like this place. And I just love the truth in advertising, um, not only for Nebraska, which is, if you've ever been to, Bra- to Nebraska, Yeah. I've been arguing for years that I, I want to sell these in the, in the campus store. <laughs> like, just lean into it and go with it, right? Like, Christians have to stop apologizing for all the ways that we are weird and understand that it's our weirdness, it's the dynamic difference of the Christ in you that is supposed to be what sets you apart in the world. I feel like so often as Christians, we're still running around trying to convince the rest of the world, we're cool just like you guys. See, we can do all this stuff just like you. We can be just like you. And Jesus is like, no, 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 be like me. Not like them. I need you to be different. 
I got a chance to do the commencement address a few years back, and this was the title out of the speech that I gave, Finish Last, Become Least, Get Lost. And man, I, I wish on like Wow Week we could like plaster this across the front of the street. Like, what a great advertising slogan. Because whoever wants to be the first must be willing to be last. Whoever wants to be the greatest among you must become the least, and whoever wants to find their life has to lose it. You see, this gospel is really backwards because it dies in order to find life, and then Jesus invites us into that with him. And it's the people who learn how to live a weird Saturday life in between the reality of the crucifixion and the promise of our resurrection that learn how to live well there that are courageous enough to live very different lives in this world. When we were down in Arizona two weeks ago, actually right during the hour when you guys were in chapel, I met an old dork grad at Speedy Tacos. And I know you're not supposed to have favorites with like graduates. Um, They're supposed to be like children, I'm told. But I have favorite dork grads, uh, people who have just gone through. I'm just like, I'm captivated by their story. And guys, the Jesus is strong with this one. Like, Daniel's story was unbelievable. And he works for Maricopa County, and he was telling me all this. I didn't even know what had all transpired in his life. And we were sitting having tacos, and he was telling me the story how he works for Maricopa County and is in charge of 70% of the resettlement of all homeless people um, in their entire county. And he's incredibly young, but he's got 75 different social workers all working and reporting to him, and everybody thinks he's this weird freak, because every time the case studies come forward, he always says, give me the hardest one, I'll take the double homicide, I'll take the one that nobody else wants. Daniel believes so deeply in the power of the resurrection and to live differently, and everybody sees it in him, and he looks like a freak in his workplace, because he takes Jesus so seriously He texted me the next day to say, the governor called me. He wants to come and talk to me about what's going on in our workplace and what's happening and the work that I'm doing. He married this incredible girl who works for the governor's office and in charge of resettling all refugees in the entire state that are coming in, and this is what they're doing with their lives. It's incredible. Trying to live Saturday life. And as I was listening to him talk, I'm like, it is so perfect that you were named Daniel. Right? The biblical Daniel rose in ranks, and then people noticed him, not because he blended in, but because he was weird. He ate weird food, he prayed to a different God, he lived differently, but he believed in the wisdom that would still transform the world the way God taught it. So why are you searching for me? I really think Jesus wants us to answer this question for him. The first words ever recorded in the Gospels that he spoke Are you looking for a wingman? Are you looking for a savior and a Lord on his own terms? Tom put it like this. Maybe for Lent I'll give up the Jesus I'm comfortable with and go find the Jesus that makes me rethink everything. You please rise. This Lenten season, may you give up the Jesus you're comfortable with and continue relentlessly searching after the one who will make you rethink and relive because you first got to die. Everything. Go in peace. Amen.